Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also click subscribe and rate and review at places like Apple, Google, Spotify Podcasts as well as wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There, uh, this month in particular, you'll probably get some Oscar stuff as well as short film discussions from the Sundance Film Festival. That is patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. For the first episode of the 2022 uh, podcast season, we're going to take a bit of a left turn. This was actually a discussion I uh, recorded as part of a, another a friend of mine's podcast, uh, Marv Dickey. He had this idea of looking at obscure uh, 1990s movies, and uh, we discussed Steven Soderbergh's Kafka for that discussion. Uh, the podcast never really took off, and so he gave me permission to to uh, publish it as part of the Sonic Cinema podcast, and I hope you enjoy. It's a really fun discussion on a movie that hopefully uh, we're finally going to get a uh, new version of from Soderbergh. Uh, I've heard it's complete. It's supposedly played at uh, Toronto last year, so hopefully we'll, it'll be a matter of time before it gets released. So I hope you uh, check out this episode of Kafka, and I hope you enjoy. Today, I have a very good friend of mine. We, although we've never met in person, you know, we're, we're online friends. He's, he's an amazing, amazing film guy who knows his stuff. And uh, he's, he's been uh, one of my favorite people on Facebook for the last 10, 12 years. I don't know. It's been, it's been quite a while. It's been about 10 years. Yeah, his name is Brian Scuttle, and uh, he is the, well, would you say owner of a website? Yeah, I mean, I'm basically, uh, I mean, it's a personal blog, but um, yeah, I mean, I basically, I, I mean, owner is uh, a good way of putting it. <laughs> you're, you're a uh, custodian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, yeah, that... So that website is uh, Sonic Cinema, www.sonic-cinema.com. Uh, I also host a uh, podcast, the Sonic Cinema Podcast, which Marv has been on many, many times. And uh, you can find that at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel, as well as Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. And I also have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. And uh, it's good to be here talking to you about uh, the movie that we're about to talk about. Well, let's get right to it then. Uh, today's film is, uh, let's keep with this little video store gimmick. You rented Kafka from my store <laughs> and you're bringing it back. Let's discuss it. Uh, Kafka is a film from 1991. And it was written by Lim Dobbs, who also wrote uh, 1998's Dark City, 1999's The Limey, and to, amongst others, also 2018's Gotti, starring John Travolta. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 didn't, I did not realize that until I saw it. 
uh, written down on the notes that you sent me. I I didn't realize he had written that Gotti film. Um, I saw it on his. Uh, I saw it on IMDb while I was doing research for him, and I was like, "Oh man, I gotta I gotta throw that one on." Well, there. yeah. I was like, "You really have to." <laughs> I was like, I saw the Gotti, and I was like, "Not the one with Travolta." And I was like, "Oh man, it's a, it should be called Paycheck, right?" Uh, it was also directed by Steven Soderbergh. This was his second feature film, his follow-up to 1989's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He had done a few shorts before that, but nothing big. Um, you you know Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic audience would probably know him from Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, the Oceans Trilogy, and most, I know you're my favorite, uh, and as well as mine, Magic Mike. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, he directed Although, all those. I, I mean, I will <laughs> say, like Magic Mike. I mean, Magic Mike is actually not a bad movie. It's it's actually an entertaining movie. I don't know that I will ever watch it again, but it's an entertaining movie. Well, that ends the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Another movie we don't agree on. That was garbage. Just, it was entertaining, but it wasn't great. It was. Oh my god, I. I had to sit through it like three times with with my ex-girlfriend. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. I lived. It also stars <laughs> Alec Guinness, as we know better as... Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi from the original trilogy. Um, he plays the, the chief clerk. Ian Holm, you know, rest in peace. We just lost him. Ian, Ian Holm is... Uh, okay, I have trouble pronouncing this. It's Dr. Murnau... Yes. Murno? Yes. Murno? Uh, Murno? Is it Mur- Murno? Okay. I, I'm part German and I can't even read that. <laughs> Not that my ethnicity should have any kind of semblance on my pronunciations. Uh, Teresa Russell as Gabriella. She's she's quoted or credited on IMDb as Gabriella, but she was Rossman, I believe, right? Was They, they referred to her as Rossman. Okay. And, and the main star, who did a fantastic job, uh, Jeremy Irons as Kafka. Yes. He's, he's credited as Franz, Franz Kafka or Kafka. Am I saying that right? Uh, is, the, Kafka. Um, is that Michigan I, Michigan it, accent coming through? Although I, I think the, the funny thing is I think in both in, in the movie you hear both uh, pronunciations um, yeah. depending on the character pronouncing, uh, pronouncing it. So yeah, I I, I think Kafka and then Kafka. Uh, Kafka. I mean, I think you hear both of them in there. I grew up too close to Canada, eh? <laughs> it's Kafka to me. Uh, yeah. So let's get let's get into this. Uh, could you give us the film description, please? Yeah. So the film is set in Prague in 1990, and it tells the tale of an insurance clerk, uh, Kafka played by Jeremy Irons, who gets involved with an underground group after one of his co-workers is murdered. The underground group, responsible for bombings all over town, attempts to thwart a secret organization that controls the major events in society. He eventually penetrates the secret organization in order to confront them. Uh, Spoiler alert for those of you who have not seen uh, Kafka, which I would imagine is most of the audience. They have they've had twenty nine years to to not see this movie, so spoilers <laughs> will happen in this podcast. Yeah. So go watch yeah. it, go find it if you're lucky enough to find it. Mm-hmm. Please continue. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, so so that's basically the 
so just to uh, get a little bit more into the uh, to get a little bit more into the description, um, the friend that passes that dies or goes missing, uh, fittingly or w at first we think he's just missing until his by later uh, comes up is Edward Werbon and uh, like like the description said he's a uh, friend of Kafka's from his work and we also see Kafka at his work and he he actually is because of Urban's uh disappearance he finds himself uh in line for a promotion that Urban was going to get and uh his and the um office manager in another uh, really great casting coup by Soderbergh is played by the great Joel Gray, who uh, yes. is best known for uh, Cabaret and uh, a bunch of other things. I also know him. He was a villain in season five of Buffy. And, oh, um, I didn't get that far. Yeah. Uh, he, he, <laughs> was, he was in a few episodes of Buffy. And uh, he also, did, he, did he win the Academy Award for, um, for Cabaret? I can't remember if he did or not. Uh, I, I, I can't remember if he won the Oscar for uh, Cabaret. I, he was, he was definitely no, because I don't know. I don't think he did, but he could have. Um, but anyway, so in one of the uh, one of the aspects of the movie is basically um, this idea. We've already talked about the underground. Uh, organization that uh Raban was a part of and um one of the things that is interesting about this movie and we'll get into this more in the uh course of the discussion because it discusses because it has to do with the way the film is uh made and uh designed to look is there's basically this idea of being called to the castle by uh, people that we don't exactly see or know. It's basically a nameless bureaucracy. And so that's one of the things that uh, leads Kafka down this uh, rabbit hole of um, conspiracy, of shadowy government um, bureaucracy, Throughout the film, and it's a uh, really compelling, uh, really com compelling film to watch. It, um, yes, he. This is Oscar winner Joel Gray in the film Cabaret. But oh wait, no, that's not it either. It, maybe it wasn't. It was seventy three. Was Cabaret seventy three? It was seventy two. It was the same year the Godfather. Uh, yes, here it is. Won. Best supporting actor for Cabaret okay. nineteen seventy two. All right. Yeah, but at the seventy three Oscars, I yeah. guess he, he won. Yeah. Problem solved, everybody. My brain does not hurt anymore. Because <laughs> I know there was there's three Oscar winners and an Oscar nominee in this film. Yeah. Joel Gray yeah. won one. Jeremy Irons won. Uh, I don't remember what four. You probably know. Uh, Universal oh. Fortune. Oh, okay. Um, Alec Guinness had had his Academy Award. For and yeah, and I believe uh, Ian Holm was nominated. Yes, for of Fire, if I remember correctly. All right, the film starts out with an amazing, amazing 
open. I, I was sold at the end of this before they even threw up the credits. I was sold because yeah. it's it's who we find out is Edward. It's Edward uh, where he meets his end. He's being chased through a city by it appears to be just this quiet stalking man, correct? Yeah. In in a kind of in a bolo hat mm-hmm. suit, very very dressed dressed to the nines kind of guy, and and he just he gets backed into a corner as he as he's being chased through and in this corner appears you know his killer a madman oh the madman was giggling and laughing as he was strangling edward Mm -hmm. i was just like what is going on here i didn't know this was going to be a horror film this is awesome it obviously it it, it's it has uh, little little bits of horror in it but it has bits of comedy too uh but that open like it sold me i was like all right Time, time to move closer to the TV. Mm-hmm. I was, I was ready. What do you think? No, I, I love that opening, and it is, is one of the things that really hooked me on. Uh, I think this is probably like the fourth or fifth time I've seen Kafka over the years. Uh, when I was rewatching it before this show, and uh, right. yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I, I almost always forget that ending, that opening of the movie, and then once it hits, you, you're just so sucked in. Uh, one of the things that's so great about uh, Kafka, I personally have not read any of uh, Kafka's uh, writing, but Neither I, I know that this is a movie that sort of ties autobiographical details of Kafka's actual life along with elements of his writing. It's one of the things that's really interesting about Len Dobbs' uh, screenplay here. And... Um, it's and you can really tell um and there's a lot of paranoia there's a lot of anxiety that comes out in the movie and there's there's just a lot of the way the energy the energy of this film it starts out with that opening it's very unnerving and yes. um the one of the main catalysts of that is not only the fact that uh, Soberg and his cinematographer Walt Lloyd uh, shot in black and white, but the Cliff Martinez score, which is probably one of my favorite scores of his for Soderbergh, if not my favorite score of his for Soderbergh. Oh, does he work with him a lot? Oh yeah, he he him and then uh, David Holmes started to work with him a lot with like Out of Sight and other movies, but yeah, Cliff Mar Cliff Martinez is been uh one of uh Soberg's primary composers over the years. I know we're both uh we're but we both love scores. Yeah. Um you more so than myself. But I, I, I kind of left that for you. I was all like if I'm gonna talk about the score, no, nah, I'll let Brian talk about the score. I know he'll talk about the score. This was my first viewing of this film. I had heard about it through the years and then I just never got to it. It was it was kind of a joke in the nineties with I think Dennis Miller would bring it up from time to time, like like in his rants, <clears throat> his editorials. He'll he would throw like Kafka in there. I don't know if he was talking about maybe the movie, maybe not, maybe maybe the writings. But uh, this film was, according to some trivia I found, this is this is a film that's hard to find information on. Yeah, it's if you if you do a YouTube search for review, because I thought I'd give it a give it a, a watch a watch a couple to just to see if. I, I got I made sense of everything, and there isn't any. 
there's a weird there's a weird edit where somebody put their own music to a weird strange edit of a progression of the film that has like the german like like the the german dubbing it's it's very it's very odd it was posted like 7 years ago it had like 43 views it's it's odd um, but yeah, there, I couldn't find any unless there was some glitch in my search at the time. I, there was I couldn't find a single movie review for Kafka on YouTube. So this is where you step in, sir. So, so <laughs> this is it, and probably and part of the reason that I would imagine that Dennis Miller uh, might bring up Kafka is because it's kind of it's kind of an example of the sophomore slump when it comes to filmmakers because. Sexualized and videotape basically put Soderbergh and indie cinema at that time on the map in a way that uh, no other film had really done. And mm. so he he basically, and I mean, it was nominated, won the Palme d'Or, Cannes, it was nominated for, I think, Oscar. I think he did get nominated for an Oscar for it, I can't remember. But um, it was it was a huge deal, and so... Kafka was his follow-up to that, and needless to say, it sank like a stone. I mean, it's one of those films where, and part of the reason, part of the reason you probably were unable to find a review of it is because it's not readily available, and it hasn't been for years. Um, I have it on VHS, uh, which was released by Paramount in the 90s. And uh, even though it's a Miramax film. And uh, so it hasn't, and there are rights issues as to the reason that hasn't been available. And it's really, I know in my review, when I did review it in uh, 2009 for Sonic Cinema, um, one of the things I said at the end were, was I was really, I was really hoping that at some point this, and another Soderbergh, his next film, which I absolutely adore, King of the Hill, would get released sometime on DVD or and now on Blu-ray. Um, and King of the Hill has gotten released on Blu-ray. It's officially part of the Criterion Collection. And I'm kind of I love I, I love Boomhauer. <laughs> not not that King of the Hill. All right, Not all right. that King of the Hill. That would be hilarious, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if <laughs> Soderbergh did like a live action version of that King of the Hill. That would be hilarious. Oh, but man, don't, uh, no fantasy uh, bookings. So, so the the film, his third film, what is it's based on a novel set in the Depression. It's really a wonderful coming of age story, and uh, that is part of the Criterion Collection now. And, oh, excellent. Uh, but um, Kafka is not. And it was funny because when we were talking about recently before either of us had seen it for this view, for this discussion, like I looked on Wikipedia and I didn't realize that the rights eventually went back to Soderbergh and a producing partner of his and they were at one point this was like 13 14 or so at one yeah, point, 2013 they, yeah they were at work on a new edit for the film and we obviously have not seen that edit maybe they're still working on it. maybe they're just waiting on completion funds 
but it or maybe they're trying to uh do things to finish it up but um i really yeah, so get to see that cut at some point preferably through somebody like criterion yeah it says in 2013 interview with vulture which used to be the New York magazine. Uh, that's just our online magazine now, Vulture. Uh, Soderbergh stated that the rights to the film had reverted to him and executive producer Paul Rossum. Is that how you say his name, Rossum? Yeah, I think so. Making sure that's correct. And that work work had been had begun on a completely different version of the movie. Soderbergh, rep- uh, rec- I'm sorry, Soderbergh reported that he and Linda Lim Dobbs did a, some rewriting inserts were shot during the making of side effects. And he plans on, he plans to dub the film in German and release both the original and new versions. And that was a 2013. Yeah. And I had, and, and in 2020, I had to buy a bootleg from South Korea DVD off of eBay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It did not come without his without his troubles. Yeah, needless to say, I mean, there there's obviously a reason a lot of people are not as familiar with this film as I wish they were, because this is like Dark Sea, which we talked about a lot um, on my podcast. Yes, uh, go to the Sonic Cinema podcast on YouTube. Is that Sonic Cinema or is it Sonic Dash Cinema? It's so on YouTube. It's the Sonic Cinema podcast. Okay, go um, to that. Find that find that episode of Dark City and listen to it. It's good. Yeah, I'm on yeah. it. That's or why. you can or you can uh, go to SonicDashCinema.com. Just look up my review, written review of Dark City, and at the uh, bottom you can see the uh, the the podcast is actually embedded in the bottom of the review. So excellent. Uh, yeah, go to go read that. Two reviews of one stone. But oh um, yeah, yeah it. I would, you know, I mean, and one of the things we talked about when it comes to Dark Sea, I think we talked about it on that podcast, was I was obsessed with that movie uh, before it came out. It was one of those movies that I really was excited about because I loved The Crow, which Alex Perez had done before that, and uh, right. I was really excited about it. And so I heard something originally about the movie coming out, and then when I started to look into it more it was written by Le- it was co-written by Lem Dobbs and Lem Dobbs and so it was around 97, 98 I can't remember if it was before or after Dark City that I was able to see Kafka uh, this was when A, video stores were readily accessible and B, when they actually had VHS cassettes um, and so I ran that and I really loved it and it was it was one of those movies that I really enjoyed and one of the things that I like about it now one of the things I appreciate about it now is that now that I've I've grown in my appreciation of cinema I'm more familiar with classic cinema it's easier to see the references that Dobbs and Soderbergh worked into this film and if you look at like some of the camera angles that um, that Lloyd employs in this, there's a lot of old school film noir in this in in the way that they um, approach the making of this film and the way that this film is shot. And if you're familiar with the Third Man, 
the Orson Welles, the Carol Reed um, thriller starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. Um, I think Cliff Martinez's score is in a lot of, there's some musical references to the third man, as well as I think that the, the way the movie is shot, I think plays into uh, being referenced to that. And then you have the bureaucratic notions in a Lemdob script when it comes to Kafka's life. And that's a bit of Brazil. And you get a little bit of that dark humor of Terry Gilliam's film in the bureaucracy aspect of this with Joel Gray's character and then with the assistance that Kafka is assigned when he does get the promotion. Yeah, the, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, the film was the honestly as soon as like the the film started and then i started seeing the the 45 degree angles i was all like oh man this has this has third man feeling to it yeah. and i was like oh hell yeah i'm gonna mention that and i just did so there's that hey <laughs> <laughs> but you beat me to it yeah the the those angles like it really and, and it's very a lot of below angles like uh when those when you see the first the meal bombing yeah. the the meal bombing yeah. scene when everybody's eating, it's they've got that that forty five degree angle, but it's coming up from their their like from the table, like from the chest. The the angle of the camera is is it's very it's a very unsettling watching these old rich men eat. They're they're coughing on on themselves yeah. and and they're gagging on their their drinks. It's just like oh, it's just, this is kind of unsettling. And I'm sure that's what they were going for, mm -hmm. and and then that man came in with the with the silver platter, and it's like, oh, don't trust him. Enjoy your meal. It's like, oh no, I'm out of here. No, no, thank you, sir. But they didn't have time to get out of there. They they got a little little exploded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one of the 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 things that I really the the thing that really is uh, fun for me about this movie, and we'll we'll talk about it, we'll. Talk about some of it a bit later uh, when we get near the end of our discussion. Is that the thing that's interesting about Kafka's writing and his ideas is he he deals in a lot of unusual type of paranoia. Like the idea he it's it's very Hitchcockian too. This idea of the wrong man wrongly accused, and you see that in. Uh, elements of stories like the trial and there's there's elements of this too where it's like Kafka Kafka is you know he he hasn't necessarily been accused of anything but you you get the feeling that he's people look at him suspiciously throughout this and then just just the and the fact that he gets stuck into this other world you know, he he could just as easily go on as a corporate drone, but at the same time, he gets sucked into this world of a larger uh, bureaucracy that is essentially controlling everything. It, and it's one of the things that's so interesting about this movie. And there are actually a couple of other uh, actors that I wanted to mention. There's uh, Jerome Crabb, who a lot of people will who was also in King of the Hill, the Spielberg film, 
but he was also uh, one of the main supporting characters in The Fugitive. And then Armin Mueller-Stahl plays a police officer in this. He's best known as the father in Shine. And the father what? The father in uh, the movie Shine. Oh, okay. So, Sorry, I didn't, um, I didn't hear it. Yeah, so those two are also key ca- characters in this. And Crab's character is essentially, he he's basically, he, he's just like, I don't know, he's a street sweeper or something like that, but he's somebody who's yeah. more knowledgeable. Uh, he He's somebody who really helps navigate Kafka in this uh, journey. Yeah, he, uh, I, I usually just uh, pick the, the top three or five when, when I, when I introduce the film, oh, yeah. there, but there's so many uh, underplayed performances in, in this uh, with, with the, the listing of uh, even their little bits, just the little bits are are pretty fantastic in this movie. Yeah, I it had me drawn in. I, I it made me put my phone down until I had to ask you things and make sure I wasn't like my bootleg wasn't uh, goofying, <laughs> being goofy. Yeah, exactly. I had audio issues. The the scene in the very beginning of the film when we meet everybody in the insurance firm. Um, the oh now I can't even think of his name. The little guy with the notebook. Oh, uh, that's Joel Gray's character. Yes, uh, uh, I can't remember his name. Yeah, I can't remember the character's name either. <sighs> okay, I'm going to edit that part out too. Okay. In the beginning of the, the film, when we meet the, the people at the insurance film, there's a scene where uh, Joel Gray is talking to Gabriella, and he's they're walking and talking. The audio was just down it was just really really low uh, there it happened a couple other scenes throughout the film uh like when they're on the bridge um when gabriella and kafka are on the bridge yeah. and she wants to meet up and and all that there was it was really low at that point too and i don't know if it was part of the film was just quiet but i suspect i just have a really crappy bootleg come on soderberg release the real thing <laughs> So I had to uh, I had to deal with I had to deal with audio issues, and then I I texted Brian because I had to. It, there's a really there's there was an odd Wizard of Oz moment where uh, about an hour five hour and ten minutes in we get a a scene where Kafka enters the castle, yeah. and the castle looks an awful lot like an insane asylum, mm-hmm. and and uh, it, it turns to color. Just yeah. like in Wizard of Oz, where she goes and gets to uh, gets to Oz, everything turns to color, and I was all like, "Oh no, was this movie all in color?" And the bootleg had it had it in black and white, and then it went back to black and white after after the scenes in the castle. It's like, oh, yeah, no, okay, that was just the style that he was going for. Yes, and I I I love that he does do that because of the fact that it really does. I mean, it does give you a Wizard of Oz feel, but also makes you feel like he's he's finally seeing things he instead of the black and white world that he was living in he's he's now open to everything that um he's supposed to be seeing in this world and yes. uh, the castle was essentially i mean the castle was essentially the it it is essentially at this place where um this this larger conspiracy comes to comes to the forefront, 
and it's so the fact that that is a color sequence and also it's important because of the fact that you you start to see it you you finally start to it's that that way that you see um black and white versus color and one of the things that's really interesting about it, the way he's before the color comes into play when he's at that junction with the different with the different doors like you you get the feeling that he's still seeing things in black and white and trying to figure he's trying to figure out a way to make it work to where he can remember which way he's supposed to go but at the same time we it's hard for us to tell that because everything looks the same and yeah. so he, he he does the drops of ink from his pen and uh yeah that it it's really a nice touch from um on Soberg and Lloyd's part that that one part is uh colorized and I wonder if I wonder if part of that might have been the studio might have won that because of the fact that oh they weren't sure how a black fully black and white movie would would play you know we need some color but the fact is if you if you take it within the narrative of the film it actually makes a lot of sense at that yeah absolutely like like you said he sees when he when he makes it to um the the castle he's seeing like you said he's seeing everything clear everything's coming to light the details he's been seeking the answers he's been seeking where everybody pretty much everybody has been kind of curious of what the castle is in this village uh it, it comes clear and when he was and when he enters the the building after he it's fantastic because there's it's a video game moment where he goes he goes to a cemetery with the street sweeper yeah. and uh, and he goes uh, he climbs in and he says uh, if I don't return or was that the right if he doesn't return or if he doesn't if he dies if he doesn't come back whatever burn my manuscripts yeah. and he he apparently said that to Kafka in real life said that to one of his partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he couldn't do it and he just went and had them published. That's why like the castle. That's part, partly this movie's partly based on is, isn't finished. Mm-hmm. It's an unfinished uh, piece, apparently. Okay. I haven't read any any of his stuff, just like yourself. But um, yeah, it was, he goes to a cemetery, climbs down a hole by a grave. They have to move a headstone uh, out of the way, and and he just he goes through a tunnel and he enters the the castle and everything's. But what, like you said, he he used this fountain pen where he squirted a little bit of ink here and there so he knows where he's going. Yeah. I was like, what is yeah. he doing? And then it, I got it. Boom! I was like, Hansel and Gretel moment. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's genius, man. He, they could have just had him slowly creeping through a hall, but they gave him an action, and I thought that little bit of action was just it was it just tied it together just right. Oh yeah, and it really fits into the uh it it really fits into the uh paranoid um the mystery aspect of this movie and that's one of the things I really like and you know in addition to the third man which I mean this is this very much is in the film noir tradition it also right. goes back to the uh German expressionist films of the silent era too I mean you can't help but think of the cabinet of Dr Caligari or something like Nosferatu, which, you know, is is probably where Dr. Murnau, as in F.W. Murnau, probably got his name from him. Uh, right. Script. Uh, speaking of that, I, I also had that same moment where I felt it was a bit of a, a Caligari uh, moment where yeah. when, we, when we see the village, it feels, the, the insurance firm 
on the inside feels like 1930s, 1940s, maybe even early 1950s, but mainly pre-World War II uh, era. It has that vibe. And then when you go outside, it feels like a 19th century European village, Mm -hmm. which it it was shot in Czechoslovakia in the UK. So I'm guessing there was no real sets there. I'm sure there was sets. Because yeah. there's definitely that castle was definitely a mat a mat painting, mm-hmm. for sure. If unless I'm wrong, because if there that's a real castle, I'm like they did a good job. They did a good job filming that to make it look like it was it was it was real. Right. Well, I mean, I you know it's, it it does make you wonder just how much had changed in Prague uh, over over the century to because I would imagine I would imagine a lot of that is probably still. In you know, a lot of that was probably still around even in the early late eighties, early nineties, um, and uh, that's that's one of the things that's so striking about this film. One of the things that I love is that the the production design and the cinematography. It's just such a wonderful uh, visual experience to watch this movie. Very much in the same way Dark City is. And yet you have this very sort of contemporary uh, mystery that's going on within it. Yeah. The, um, man, uh, where, to, where to begin? The, it's, there's so many little elements that all come together great. I really, his writings is what brings him to meeting his, well, his co-workers are part of a terrorist group uh, that, that are responsible for bombings throughout the city, the village, whatever whatever we can call it. I would say it's it's a city, right? Yeah, yeah I would say so. The uh, Gabriella, who he works with, wants him to come work on the propaganda that they're, that they're distributing. Because his writing is fantastic and there's is not they're, they they their writing apparently is is very lacking and they want him to come on on board to just do the writing and he refuses to because he writes for himself i i think that was a uh interesting way to kind of squeeze him into knowing who these people are mm-hmm. it, just just that little bit like you're a good writer we need you and now he's he's in the middle of all this this secret society terrorism bomb threats and not really threats just bombings yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, through these people who are fighting back uh, in a way it's they're fighting it's kind of like the people that really want to know what the matrix are <laughs> the yeah. matrix is oh yeah and why is it this way why are they running things why are the why is why is society controlled by these people in particular and for what reasons and they that's why they want to know what's going on at the castle because everything's going to be focused around the big castle in town yeah yeah and the fact that it ends up being and the fact that the castle kind of it it's basically an sort of, sort of a mental institution in a way, but it's also sort of an indoctrination. It, it's a place where they will lobotomize you to try to get you to conform, or you know, if if you can't conform, they'll essentially kill you there. And right. um, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, it is the Matrix is all over this as well. I mean, basically any any movie uh-huh. where like it's it's about unveiling the of the world that these characters exist in 
I mean, that's that's basically this is one of those things that it obviously in, it obviously is something that interests uh, Dobbs because of the fact that he revisited some of these same ideas in Dark City, and then right. the Dark City is very much in the same vein as the Matrix, and then you just it it but it's also in this realm of fiction and this realm of science fiction that I mean it does go back to Kafka. So, it's. Uh, I find that yeah, that that connection is is pretty cool because usually, like like you and I have discussed at, at length about the Dark City and Matrix connections, and I now I kind of want to throw uh, Kafka into this discussion because Kafka feels like the the primitive version of the Matrix, yeah. and Dark City yeah. is kind of like the futuristic the futuristic version of Kafka. And then that also leads into the the further into the future version of the Matrix, and I, I feel like it'd be it, 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 they all kind of connect, like you said, they connect in the same way that you know they want to know who's running things and why and yeah. what, what's going on in the world. Yeah, and I mean it's funny because of the fact that like Kafka is so obscure, but the fact is it's like. Fan, I can see fans of the Matrix, fans of Dark City, really loving it because of the fact that it taps into some of the same, a lot of the same ideas that those movies do in terms of philosophy, in terms of the or the the type of stories that's telling, and then you you just have the visual aspect of it that's just wonderful as well. Let's take a moment and step away from the, the film and let's discuss its reception. The, the film was released in 1991 and it had a budget of $11 million. Do you know how much it made, Brian? Uh, I, just I'm, talking box office, not home video. So I'm going to guess it was less than two? Yes. <laughs> it was actually one-tenth. It was $11 million budget and it made $1.1 million at the box office. Wow. Yeah, so that was a probably a, a, a good reason why this started to fall into its grave of, yeah. of being buried. The uh, on right now on Rotten Tomatoes, after twenty three reviews, the critic score is fifty two percent. It's so it's not fresh, no. but the audiences love it because after nearly five thousand reviews, it has a seventy seven percent. Okay. So it's this is one of those movies that is divided between the professionals and the the movie watchers. Well, and the funny thing is, it's like I have a I wonder how many of those 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 professionals, if they had a chance to rewatch it now, how much of them would probably change their minds about it? I have a feeling oh, do you think have a better reception now than it did in 1991, just because of the fact that. I think a lot of people would probably look at it as, oh, well, this isn't what is Soderbergh doing here? Why is he why is he doing this weird thing? And it's like we basically weren't at that point where audiences were conditioned for something to sort of like test their nature of reality when it comes to film. And in, in the same way that Kafka does, in the same way The Matrix does, in the same way Dark City. And so, so I, you, feel like, I feel like 
if this movie ever does see the live day again by Criterion or something like that, you're going to get start to either get people revisiting it for the first time in almost 30 years, or you're going to start to see people see it for the first time after having finally have it available and realize, hey, this is a damn good movie. Yeah, I, so you think the out of those 23 critic reviews, you think the majority of them are um, retrospective reviews? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I would kind of have to... I would imagine there, there are... Let me uh, look. Let me try to bring up IMDb here. Okay. Um, and look at... But, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that the ones that are on... I would I if it's fifty two percent rotten, then I would say that probably a good percentage of those are in fact original uh, reviews for it from right looking back on looking back on their reviews or maybe even finding an article that they wrote. Yeah, yeah, because I I know Roger Ebert. I don't think Roger Ebert was a fan of it in nineteen ninety. Yeah, it doesn't seem like any, not, not many people were, because what, yeah. at 52% yeah. of 23 is what, 12? So 12 out of the 23 yeah, it's, it, liked yeah. it. So it's, but the, like I said, the audience has a 77% change, uh, 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 77% of 5, 000, nearly 5,000 mm-hmm. enjoyed the film. So I'm, I absolutely enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder how 5,000 people actually got a hold of it recently uh since it's so unavailable but yes it, i bet you there's a lot of uh bootlegs from from south korea that's making some dough oh no doubt <laughs> no, no unless doubt. you have the vhs collectors you know a lot of vhs yeah. collectors are out there now I, there's a few documentaries that are, that on vhs collecting that i really enjoy uh i don't think i have it in me to collect something like that i'm, I'm i it, it that takes up a lot of space i remember yeah. having having uh, 600 VHS tapes and needing like four bookshelves <laughs> to have it. So I don't, I'm not going to get into that game. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of depended. Well, and it kind of depended on uh, how you would stack them as far as how many, how much space you needed to, uh, to, to put them all to on display. The bookshelf, so. yeah, okay. Real quick. Uh, sidetracking. I can edit this if I want to, or I'll leave it in. You have VHS and DVDs. Right, yeah. Blu-rays. You have all all that. Yep. Do you have Laserdisc? I never got into Laserdisc. It was too okay. expensive. But yeah, we never got into Laserdisc. How often do you catalog or organize your 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 collection? So I just finished. I just basically finished doing that for the first time in a while. I finally found. Uh, I, I finally I finally found um, a lot of my uh, VHSs that I had been missing for a long time. Oh, nice! So um, I was finally able to add those and to, you know, make sure to log those. And we've upgraded some of them to DVD, Blu-ray as as can. And there, admittedly, there are some that like we're just not able to because they're not available on DVD or anything. Right. Um, and thus this all of them, but thus this uh, this uh, little podcast of mine. Uh, yeah. You know, I I'm searching for those movies that are really good or worth a watch that just have 
just become missing because they never got a DVD or Blu-ray or even not even on streaming. Yeah. Now, Amazon Prime is different because they have a lot of the, these obscure ones for to rent. So maybe that's another place where they found Kafka for the, the audience. Possible. But, yeah, I mean, especially if there were rights issues where the rights holder was just, like, not not doing anything with that, I would have a hard time... I would have a hard time believing that would be available on Prime, though. Oh, but, good idea. Yeah. Well, by now it, it might be over the last few years because yeah. Soderbergh has the rights. He might have just let it go. We don't know. I'll have to look on Amazon Prime later and, and, and give you an update. Yeah. The uh, But getting back to you, do you catalog them by uh, genre, by director, by, you know? So, so when I was single... Um, I did used to do it by genre and by sometimes by filmmaker and stuff like that. I, I had more of a specific one. Uh, now that I'm married, uh, my my wife uh, wants to do it alphabetically. So we, we do alphabetically. I will say, though, we have separate um, – we, we do separate, like, Marvel Cinematic Universe, DC, Star Wars. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all that. So, so if you have like Rogue One, it's going in the Star Wars yes. collection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See that when I first started collecting my VHS back in the '90s, when I got to like seventy, eighty, instead of just leaving them in a in a pile, I got my first bookshelf, and I was like John Cusack's character from uh, High Fidelity. Well, Yes, high fidelity. Where I was constantly re- redoing it, doing it by director, because I'd have a few like Spielberg films, and then I'd have like West Craven films, and then I started doing by genre. And you know, I, okay, so here's here's the comedy, here's the horror, here's the drama, and and then I just got to the point where I was just like, I'm tired of doing this, and I just alphabetized them all, and I cannot go without alphabetizing my films anymore. Yeah. I have to have it alphabetized. <laughs> And it hurts the head, especially when you you have a large collection. I have I have close to seven hundred. I'm sure yours makes mine look embarrassing. The but the uh, <laughs> I I sit there and over the last couple of months I've been slowly I finally kind of finished. I ran out of space, so I have a big giant stack of unalphabetized ones that kind of hurt the head. Yeah. But I, all of them are alphabetized. But I had a full uh, shelf like oh this looks beautiful. It's all done, and then it's like. Oh no! Here's a G. I'm on the M's. I'm I'm up to M. Here's a G. Yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. Um, that that's one of the most frustrating things ever. Uh, when it comes to because I just after like a couple of years of not having it really, uh, not really having it organized. Uh, since I've been furloughed from work, I basic that's one of the things I knew I wanted to do during this time and just make sure get everything alphabetized as much as possible, get everything organized as much as possible. We got some more bookshelves. So it's so yeah, I mean it's it's a little bit messier and we've actually added stuff since then. So that's gonna have to be reorganized, but it's not gonna be as a, as massive an undertaking as it was. Excellent. I one of the things I wanted to learn in this whole uh, shut down the world uh, scenario was learn a new language. Mm-hmm. I never got to it, but I think I'm going to learn how to uh, speak Korean, at least cuss Korean, to this uh, this guy who sold me this DVD. <laughs> okay, getting back to the film, was there any scene that you could not 
Was there any? Well, I can't say scene. Was there anything about this film that you did not enjoy? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything specific that I don't know that there's really anything specific that stands out. I mean, I I think like the only real sort of weak link and. If if we're going in the cast, I think like sort of the only real weak link is Teresa Russell. I I I mean, you know, Grand, there's there's a we we went over the credentials with of mo of this cast as far as Oscar nominees, Oscar winning actors and stuff like that. And right. so I mean it's kind of hard to compete with that. But I mean, she's you know, Teresa Russell's okay in the role, she's fine, she there's there it's it's a very standard female character that mm-hmm. she's got written for and so that 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 makes it kind of hard to uh can't really rock a role that's really, just for her to really stand out in uh it was too formal formulaic it's too formulaic for her to stand out yeah. To 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 perform, you can't really you know you can't really perform when they hand you vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> gotta make I, it... I think that's a that's a pretty good way of putting it. So she did the best she could. Yeah. Yes, I I enjoyed her performance, but again, it's that was one of those. Like I said uh, the, uh, earlier, she's like you said earlier, she is one of those. Here, go act with all these amazing Shakespearean trained, amazing British actors, and 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 then she's doing her damnedest. She did her great job as, as best she could, but it like her character alone kind of for me, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a fan of her character to the point where I was sad that she yeah. was strapped to a table at the end. I was just like, oh, okay, so that's what happened to her. <laughs> it's like her. The t- it was almost like there was missing pieces of her. Yeah. I, I I feel like there should have been more of her, but then again, I didn't want the movie to run to like two or three hours, and I'm sure they didn't want to do it either. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm I'm really gonna be curious to see uh, what the film looks like reshaped, because I wonder if there's anything more to that that character that you know, may, might get added because, I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about director's cuts sometimes is that you see you you see different things come through with regards to character motivations and characterizations that then you normally that you did in the theatrical. So, it's, and with Soderbergh you, you almost feel like there can be something more to that character. Mm-hmm. Um that might come out in a different cut. I'm, I'm very curious to see what that's going to look like when it comes to like them doing pickups and reshoots in like 2013 when most of these actors look very different. Yes, it's been because they probably filmed it in 90 for 91 yeah. release because back then it's film. It took a while to develop and, and edit. So I'm guessing 23 years older. Jeremy Irons is probably uh, not looking the same. No, I'm sure everybody's not looking the same. No, and, they, I mean, and we lost a few people too along the way. Yeah, I mean, Alec Guinness passed away in 2000. Uh, Joel, Dr- see, when did Joel Grey? I mean, like you said, we just lost Ian Holm, but I mean that wouldn't have prevented him from uh, 
being in uh, this, being in more scenes in this movie, um, and also makes me it it also makes me sad to think that maybe there were like deleted scenes and stuff like that that just got destroyed or something along the way if they had to like reshoot scenes or shoot more scenes. It, it's really right. kind of unfortunate if that's the case. Joel Gray is still alive. Oh wow! Okay. 1932 is April 11, 1932 is his birthday. He's still alive. Wow. I don't know if he's doing anything. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I really... imagine he's probably, I, I would imagine he hasn't really been in too much since, because he was on Buffy in uh, 2001. So. Ah, mean, 2019, yeah. 2019, uh, the investigation, the search for the truth. In 10 acts, he played Jeff Sessions in that. He was on CSI, uh, the original CSI show, the Vegas one, oh, okay. in, 2004, in 2014. So All right. it, he's slowly not picking up jobs. Oh, no, 2009, he was steady working okay. all the way until 2014, and he had another job in 2019. Good for him. Okay, yeah. What a trooper. It's kind of like Richard Harris, you know, everybody's like, Richard Harris is still alive? Yeah, and he's still acting. He's a new Harry Potter, you know, that kind of thing. And then he passed away. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. I've, I've killed uh, many celebrity asking, are they still alive? And the next day they're dead. It happened to Telly Savalas, because TNT, the channel, was still celebrating his birthday one year. Yeah. And he died the day after his birthday. And I was like, he's still alive? I did that to Don Pardo. I'm like, oh, my God, Don Pardo's still alive? And then, nope. 24 hours later, he, he passed away. So I, when I look up to see an old celebrity is still, is still alive or dead, I'm, I'm worried. Yeah, I've got a curse. I've got a curse on me. So what was your favorite part of the film? Um, I think my favorite part of the film actually is... I think my favorite... Let's see, if we're going like individual scenes, individual moments... Anything. Uh, I would probably say... I would probably say the stuff with the uh, the twins is really enjoyable. Um, my absolute favorite part of this movie, though, is Cliff Martinez's score. I I and it kills me that this is not available to. Uh, I think you can find it on YouTube. You can find tracks of it from cues on on YouTube. But yeah, it it kills me that this this isn't available commercially. My one of my favorite parts is. Well, the two, like you said, the twins. Yeah. I don't know if you have you ever seen uh, Bob's Burgers. No. Okay, there's a pair of twins that are like kind of dimwits, Andy and Ollie, and these guys feel like the grown-up version of Andy and Ollie. And I was like, <laughs> and, and I shouted that to my wife. I was just like, hey, it's like Andy and Ollie. The, that, that's where the, the the comedy came in for me was with the the twins. Like they're 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 there just to you know spoilers obviously. Uh, they're there to basically watch Kafka. Their job is to be there to be his assistant, but to watch him. Yeah. And so they they do these weird things like where that that uh, it was kind of cool where they kept hitting the what the space bar or no they kept turning the the wheel till the paper came through and yeah. it rolled over yeah. into yeah. the other the other one's typewriter. Mm -hmm. That was fantastic. But that the race to the to the ding yeah. with their where they <laughs> held up their fingers and then they went down and was pressing the space bar fast. Mm -hmm. I just want I just want about another hour of them just trying to burn time. And and then uh, I believe it was one of the twins that were like it was they heard the bell to go 
like the bell rang for into work day and they he threw up all these like he had all these files out on his desk he, he grabs them all in one haunch he throws them up top on, on a, sh- a bookshelf and he's just like this whole process he's going in between the desk he's going under the desk and he's knocking the chair around just the, i i love that moment but for me it has to be the feeling i got when when a movie affects you and that's probably why I'm a horror film. Like, I love when a movie, like, I don't watch it, and it's like, ah, oh, it was all right. And, but I love it when it affects me. And all the angles, the change of color, uh, it, it just, the unsettling, mainly the angles, the way it's shot, it's just, just, I really enjoyed it. It, it made me, like, into the film. I was, like, leaning in, you know, listening to the every scene. It was, the, the Madman was fantastic. I think he needs a, a film by himself. Uh, again, uh, that character or a character like that because yeah. we didn't even discuss it. They, the he was a madman because he was uh, experimented on yeah. in Doctor Mengele's uh, castle uh, <laughs> or whatever. You know the the uh, Doctor Moreau. No, that's Murnau. Moreau is a different experimental doctor, but they they shave the part in their back of their head. Usually where men usually first start seeing male pattern baldness. And there's like part of their brain has been exposed and they just put the kind of like a cap. They just put the skull back on with the skin. And this madman's just just running around. I loved I loved him. But the atmosphere, the angles, the the tone of everything, uh, I absolutely enjoyed yeah. uh, about this film. And it made me feel something. I mean, I felt unsettled and I felt... I, I felt interested. I wanted to find answers just like him, just like Kafka did. And, and I was along for the ride and I enjoyed yeah. that. No, I, I, I am a big fan of this movie. I still really enjoy this film. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those where I really like, I will, I will gladly, I will be one of the first to buy this movie when it's available. Cause I, I want it. I want to see it. First of all, I want to see it in widescreen because it's full frame, and I can't imagine that this movie is anything less than just stunning to watch in a uh, on a widescreen format. Like I, I have to imagine his his shot composition, and yeah, I mean the black and white photography, just the photography in general, is uh, great in this movie. It's just such a fantastic. It, it's such a fun, uh, entertaining thriller. And it's it's one of those things where if you appreciate this f- type of film, if you appreciate film noir, if you appreciate... Um, if, if you appreciate movies that uh, take chances, this is one that is well worth checking out. And uh, I, I really cannot recommend it highly enough, especially if you're... A Soderbergh fan, and this is still blind spot for you with him. Um, it's it's well worth it's well worth checking out. I will also uh, second that and recommend it as well for anybody who can get their hands on it, be it through Amazon Prime. If you, if you see it, rent it on there. It's you won't be disappointed unless you're like, oh, I can't stand movies in black and white. I have a friend who hasn't seen Clerks yet because they're like, oh, I don't watch black and white movies. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, oh, then you're missing out on so much. You're missing out on like 50 years of great stuff, man. But yeah, uh, I absolutely would recommend this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably going to watch it again sometime down the road. Maybe not so much after this because I'm going to be probably rewatching for for two edited scenes into the podcast of, <laughs> of good stuff. But 
just like welcome to the dollhouse i'm done with that i'm done with it I'm, I'm i'm ready to put it on the shelf and let it sit and collect dust for about a year or two before i give it another watch yeah i i haven't seen that one since 97 i think so yeah that's that's one i definitely need to uh rewatch at some point it's it's definitely a fun time capsule yeah <laughs> There's my co-host. Hey, <laughs> chill. Okay, this is the part of the show. This is my little gimmick at the end. If you had to pair it with the, another film for a one-night double feature, what film would you pair it with? So I I know what your choice is, and that was that was my first one too. But I actually thought of another one that is probably more obscure. But uh, really fits in nicely with um, Kafka, and part of the reason is it's it's a film based on one of Kafka's most famous stories, and it is Orson Welles' The Trial. It was a movie made in 1960. Uh, two was released in 1963. It was actually produced by the Stalkines, whom you might be familiar with as the producers of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. And um, it's, it's a movie he made after his, his time in Hollywood was essentially over and Wells was struggling to get productions up and running. Um, but he did still continue to make some really interesting films. Uh, Times at Midnight, which is uh, an adaptation of Shakespeare, is one of his most famous ones. That is part of the Criterion Collection. The Trial, I hope, is one that does get added to the Criterion Collection. It has Anthony Perkins as Joseph K. And going into something that I was talking about with Kafka, it's essentially Joseph K. is accused of a crime... He doesn't know, but he, when he tries to ask, well, what crime am I committed? Am I, am, am I guilty of? Nobody will tell him. And, um, so he's under what's known as open arrest. And so the, the movie is essentially his journey to try to figure out what crime he committed and to try to get answers. Um, oh. Anthony Perkins is Joseph K., in the film. Uh, Orson Welles has a role in it. John Moreau has a role in it. Um, I watched it in, I first watched it in like 2002, 2003. It is available on iTunes now if you want to uh, check it out. I highly recommend it. It's well worth watching. I got as per this double feature uh, disc that was like bargain basement double feature disc that was at Walmart, I don't think they have it anymore, but it is on iTunes. But it is, uh, it's one of the best films Orson Welles ever did, actually. And um, it's just such a compelling movie. It just you, you can't stop watching it. And it, especially if we're talking about Kafka, it it makes sense to pair this with probably the best adaptation of his work in dramatic form. So I would I would pair it with The Trial by Orson Welles. Do you know what year that came out? Uh, 1963. Oh, excellent. Oh, so this is post-Psycho. Yeah. 
Yeah. Was this was this uh, Perkins' first film after Psycho? Do you know? I don't know about that, but it was it was it it definitely like. <clears throat> the film probably rode the wave of Psycho probably, to help him get the job. Probably, okay. Yeah. That yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm I'm actually uh, yeah, I think you sold me on that one. I want to try to find that. Uh, for me, my double feature option would be we talked about it before, Dark City. I went the the easy route. And like Brian said, he he was going to take it too, but uh, it's okay if we come up with a uh, the same double feature. But uh, it's just a little my little game here at the end. But if I if I would pair it, it'd have to be Dark City for reasons we already discussed. You know, the the the, the same society trying to find out who's running it and why. Uh, and if you're gonna, if you got time for a third, I'd say toss in the Matrix. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, throw in the throw in the Matrix and and just watch a progression of of society and time quote-unquote society because of dark city you know mm-hmm. when we discover what's what's going on with that city yeah i'd like to thank marv once again for allowing me to uh share this as part of the sonic cinema podcast i really have always been a fan of kafka since i first watched it and i i got to thinking that it would be good first episode for uh 2022 because of the fact that I'm actually going to be discovering discussing Soderbergh again for another podcast early in the year, and I will uh, keep you abreast on when that is. For now, though, uh, thank you very much for joining me at the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Next up, we are going to be discussing the Oscars, my best films of the year, and of course, the Sundance Film Festival. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy. Thank mm-hmm. you.